0: This is A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends, a podcast ministry of Somebody Cares America, being a tangible expression of Christ in a hurting world. Ron, you can open some prayer because obviously this is a very important um, uh, heart to heart, is what I'm calling it, because we all have our personal views and preferences, political preferences and opinions, but. I think as the church, we have to cross our racial and denominational lines in the midst of recognizing uh, the state of where things are. If we're going to have lasting reform, we have to deal with the inward corruption of our hearts, uh, even as the church, so that we can be the healing balm to the soul of our nation that needs it desperately. And we can't just sweep it under the carpet, but we have to recognize where, uh, why things are the way they are, and then how do we as the church leaders uh, bring healing and hope and change uh, in, in, a, in a way that we can represent Christ properly. So, Brian, if you'll open in prayer so we can uh, have this time together with some of those who will be sharing with us. Yes, I want to pray. Luke 18, it's when Jesus
1: actually uh, spoke to this particular situation with uh, his people under Roman domination. He said, men ought to always pray and not lose heart. And so I pray now in Jesus' name that even as, Lord God, we are in the throes of birth pains in our regions and in the nation and in the earth, God, that you would give us Uh, the spirit of the widow woman that would go before you day and night for justice. I thank you, Jesus, that that expression, Lord God, is the expression that I believe this uh, gathering is gathering around, that we would seek you, Lord, that we would go before the judge of heaven and earth to receive justice which is That's not right. just making wrong things right, but it's reconciling the wrong with the wrong. Lord, I thank you, Jesus, that you release that justice of reconciliation. Yeah. And you release it. Uh, let the words of our mouths and the meditation of our heart be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name,
0: amen. Amen. I wanted to set the tone. Obviously, there is so much layers of injustices we've all talked about justice reform we've been talking about that for decades and these horrific moments that we see lived out before us especially with the advent of social media so much people can vent on and attack each other on social media and i recognize it uh, we have the freedom of expression that's one of our rights for all of us i just think as christian leaders how do we help bring this important message to the forefront again and again and not attack each other, but be a plumb line of healing and hope. Because as we all know as Christian believers and leaders, that our only hope is in Christ Jesus, the hope of glory Christ in us. And as I was talking first to Von Juan yesterday, Von Juan was sharing the burden and the pain of his heart and even where he's been thrown down before he was a believer. We know that there is a systemic issue that has to be dealt with. But at the same time, we have to also recognize that not all law enforcement are evil, but we have to deal with the systemic issues, and so we can see lasting reform and change. I'm reminded of the reform of Josiah in 622 BC, when King Josiah saw how out of order things were, and he legislated the law back to the best he knew how. But Zephaniah and Jeremiah, who were contemporaries, uh, Zephaniah said basically this, it's a good thing to change laws, but until we first deal with the inward corruption of the heart, it will not last. And so I think it's important for us as Christian leaders, especially, how do we address the inward corruption of the heart, be it covert or overt prejudices, racism, insecurities, misunderstandings. As Dr. Edwin Lewis Cole used to say, people are afraid of what they don't understand. How do we bring the message to a place where people can begin to understand different culture? I was sharing with some of our team the other day, dealing with many of the different gangs in the Polynesian area. I was in Parima Rima prison many years ago, and many of the even gang leaders who had come to know Christ would not even fellowship with each other, even in chapel. And so I had to sit down with them and explain to them that we are part of a higher law of love now, regardless of our differences And I think at the same time as the church, we need to cross our denominational worship experience preferences, our political preferences, our racial differences, or ethnic backgrounds and differences in that way. And as I've always said and written about that, although I'm proud, I'm an American with Asian descent. I was born in Japan. Mother was Japanese. I also recognize that as a Christian, my family is us. It's those who serve the Lord. That's our family. And from there, the world can see that we are one. And so I want to to live by that as difficult as at times it can be. We have to be intentional, don't we, to have relationship because the kingdom of God's built on relationships. How do we, Vaughn, as you have family that's in the, as the police chief, I think, in the Virgin Islands, how do we deal with the reality of the frustration you have experienced in others at the same time as a minister of the gospel? How do we address this? And then, of course, wanting to also pray for those who are righteous and are not racist in intention, but they're part of a system that needs to be changed. So Vaughn, just share with me some of the things you were sharing yesterday.
2: I appreciate the opportunity to speak, Doug and and, Vaughn, born in the Caribbean but raised on the southeast side of Houston, Texas. And uh, just growing up, I definitely faced a lot of racial profiling and things like that. And and unfortunately, in November of 2006, um, I was stopped by the Pearland police and crazy story short, man, four police officers um, beat me almost to death, was laying on the ground, not breathing, tased multiple times, called that night shock therapy. And uh, that was really the wake up call I needed to to get right with God. But I do have family that uh, in the police force and, and friends that I love. And, and another vantage point that I have in, in this all of this turmoil is my wife is Caucasian. So I have my black friends that are wanting to go strong on the, the black power thing, but My house is divided in that area. So for me, the way I was looking at it, even in the midst of almost losing my life to the hands of police officers, I got indulged in filling my my life with the love of Jesus Christ and understanding that loving the Lord, that God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Like Jesus was talking to uh, the guy in Luke when he was asking him, how do I gain salvation? He said, also, love your neighbor as yourself. And I believe the problem of the answer always was, and the answer always will be, Loving your neighbor as yourself, and when I looked at that scripture, Luke ten thirty three, what I what popped out to me was he said, but as a Samaritan traveled, he said he came to where the man was, and that stood out to me. See the the priest and the Levite, they crossed the street with the iPhone in their hand. If y'all hear what I'm saying, but the Samaritan came to where the man was. He was willing to get in the man's shoes with him. That was how he was able to take pity on the man. So even though we have people that don't understand fully what it is to be black or what it is to deal with, we have to be willing to come to where these people are. Our white brothers and and other race have to be willing to come to where these people are and take pity on them. The other part of it I saw was, I told him take pity, you have to take action, but then you have to take responsibility. Not only did he help the man put him on his own donkey, but he left them at the end with a couple of denarii and took responsibility that when he came back. So I thought, who, who are the innkeepers? You know, somebody cares, you're the innkeepers. The, the different ministries and nonprofits that are there with hands and feet on the ground, these are the innkeepers that everyone on the outside, even though they can't be there fully, that we have to take responsibility and keep sowing into the plight and the problem that we're dealing with. But at the, at the end of the day, we have to learn how to love our neighbors as ourselves, and and blacks, we have to be bold enough to speak up and not condemn an entire police department, not condemn an entire white race, and look at it through the lens of Christianity and a biblical view. And uh, and that's what I've I've done. And I've been God has pushed me in this corner of having the Caucasian family, having the police officers that I love, and having being a person that was abused by police but I've overcome that and not consider myself a victim. And as black people, we can't be victims. We have to understand that the problem is not that our skin is black, the problem is the racist. When I see pastors sometimes and they say, oh, i I'll never understand what it feels like to be black. No, that's not you, you're not coming to where I am. I need you to understand that. I need you to put my shoes on. You shouldn't be baffled by being black, you should be baffled by being a racist. You understand what I'm saying? So that's the kind of the, the paradigm shit I'm hoping people will look at and take on that heart. Amen.
0: What I appreciate about many of you that'll be sharing in Vaughn is that I want you to be honest with us to educate the rest of us. I do have other friends that are also minority leaders, but in the context of what we're doing today, I felt like it's important to hear the systemic injustices primarily against African-Americans or those of African descent in this country who love this country. And we've all benefited in some way, but there has to be some uh, lasting reform. But I appreciate each of you. And please educate us as we journey together. I've got my own prism by which I see things and the things that that I grew up under. But at the same time, as believers in Christ, we need to learn from one another and at the same time bring healing and hope in the midst. You know, I'm reminded of Micah chapter four. It says in the latter days, all peoples will gather at the mountain of the Lord. I know that's literal, but I'm talking about in a spiritual context, all people should be welcome at the house of the Lord. And when we come together, we put aside our weapons of warfare against each other, it says, and pick up harvesting tools so that the outcasts, the lame, and the sick will become a strong nation together. In generations past, whenever there was crisis, the church was the centerpiece of the community. And now, in many ways, the church has become uh, an institutional uh, and even a laughing stock for fodder in some areas or people trying to shut the mouth of the church. This is our moment to demonstrate that we are in the body of Christ are one, we want to be educated, we want to learn, and we want to stand with our brothers and sisters who is our family? So thank you, Vaughn, and thank you for everyone. Uh, Apostle Kevin Barber has been a longtime friend. Has a great men's ministry. If you will just share with us what's on your heart and a little bit about what you posted and how you can educate the rest of us to help walk and journey together, so we can be that healing balm.
3: Thank you, Doug. I really do appreciate the opportunity.
4: Humbled to be on this platform with so many people, friends that I see that I've known for many years, and I want to just step in and and say what I believe that. Uh, you know, based on my experience and what I've been walking through over the years and especially since uh, these last few days, say the things that I believe that God has inspired in my heart and lay that on the table for us to just really talk about and um, just to to offer as thought. My post on Facebook, both of them were really a result of my heart breaking, number one, just torn before I even came on this line earlier, you know just battling with emotions, right? Uh, The hurt, the disappointment that people treat people, anybody, the way we saw displayed in that video. Um, And yet at the same time, while the anger and the frustration is wanting to arise in me, there's a part of me that is so committed to who, who I am in Christ and to the kingdom of God that I, I want I want that to be, I want that anger to be governed. I want it to be healthy and I want it to be directed uh, towards helping change to come about. I think the premise of everything that I shared is that racism is a sin of the heart. I think that if we start anywhere other than there, we as leaders in the body of Christ, I can't speak for activists, I can't speak for those that are doing the interviews in cities that are mobilizing organizations that have always fought against discrimination, uh, that have always fought against racism and, and these type of things in our society. I can't speak for them, but for me, and I believe as leaders in the body of Christ, if we don't start from the premise that racism is a sin, we can end up in conversations and we can end up in a train of thought or in a line of thinking that is going to eventually, I believe, I personally believe, have us so far from the kingdom response that's necessary in order to see things change in our society. And so my thinking is on two lines of thoughts. I know, number one, I believe two processes are involved here. Number one, there needs to be real practical change. There needs to be things implemented through policies There needs to be uh, maybe changes that are made in various offices and politically around our country and the judicial system that will help facilitate policies that will begin to address the systemic racism that is inherent within the the very fibers of our country. I believe that has to happen. Uh, But secondly, I believe on the other side, which is where I'm at, is to make sure that as we go through those processes that our hearts remain in the posture that is honoring to the glo- honoring to our Father in heaven first, but also in line with who we are called to be as salt and light, as believers in the earth. And I don't believe that we can do that if we, for one minute, uh, give permission to our emotions to become the engine that drives us. Especially in the African-American community and my brothers that are standing and, and, and doing great things in the community, pastoring great churches. But for us, our response, yes, we have the emotion. It's real. We have to affirm each other. We want you, our white brothers and sisters and brothers and sisters that are brown, and you know, all of you, come on, we're the body of Christ. We want you to feel our heart. We need to have our moment of emotion. But my prayer was to get to a table, to get to a platform where there will be men and women who can endure the emotion, that can listen to the emotion part of it and affirm it. And and, 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 and then after I've expressed it, to be able to say, okay, now what are we going to do about it? Um, And I believe that this is the kind of table that I'm at right now because I know Doug, and I know that there are many of you on here that have for years, look to effect change within the community, within the church, uh, within our government. And so I'm excited about what God wants to do going forward. I'll say this, and then I wanna just sort of pull away a little bit and just allow you know, myself to really continue to learn, because I am. Um, just for encouragement, I, I know of a pastor, one of my brothers in Christ, we're, we're under the same spiritual father for the last two weeks, two and a half weeks, he has been interacting in a platform similar to this with African-American, black men and women of God, white men and br- men and women of God, and talking about this very thing. And I watched the first night and I saw the emotion and I saw the anger and I saw, and I was like, Lord, are we gonna get anywhere? And those guys followed up a, two, a few days later or the next night and they had some very intense, honest, open communication talked about their feelings, talked about how they saw things. And by the time they came back for their second meeting that they did live on Facebook, it was so encouraging to see them moving progressively forward. My prayer has been is that they don't lose ground after this incident, because I knew that there were many on that line that believed and have been hurt and then believed a certain way. And this can incite that, that same emotion again that says we're still in the same place. But I want to just say this and I'll I'll stop. You know, when Pastor Vaughn talked about Luke 10, it's amazing that I woke up with that scripture on my mind. And I think that it does give us some sense of um, pattern of how we can maybe navigate through this process as it relates to maintaining a heart that is pure towards each other, where we're not angry and frustrated, where we're speaking to each other in truth. That's Ephesians four, when you look at the whole aspect of what it means to grieve the Holy Spirit, the kind of words that we use towards each other, with each other, that's all important. That's very, very important. But what I see uh, Luke 10 as being is an opportunity for us to revisit the core values of who we are as believers that we can have love, and I talked about this on the post. You, you can have the, the, uh, theological degrees. You can feed the poor. You can be an awesome social activist. You can be all those things, man. But if you don't have the love of God in your heart, man, mm. the Bible says, the Apostle Paul says, this is the, we're the new covenant. He says we are nothing. We amount to nothing. And oh. so the marker for our lives, as Vaughn uh, pointed out in that text, the marker is loving God with everything we have and then loving our neighbor. And you can't get around who your neighbor is. That's why Jesus told the parable of the Samaritan. But I wanna say that, I would almost say that we as African-American or black men and women of God in the body of Christ, people that are out there that may not even know the Lord, that are out there that are angry right now. I believe they sit in the seat of that Jewish man that was hurt and bruised and beat up and, and uh being passed up on the path by those that even look like you. And I think there's a part of ownership that we must take and have some real conversations within the African-American black community about what type of ownership we're gonna take about the condition of our communities and not always run to the fact that there are policies that are prohibiting many people from moving forward. But yet, what are we doing? What are we doing to give back? And this is a question for me. Trust me, this is not a question of condemnation. This is for me. What are we doing for our young Black uh, boys that that need mentoring? What are we doing for our girls? Because I see things that are going on in our community that will never make the news, and we don't talk about it because there's such a shame attached to it, we don't speak about it. But God is saying to us in this season, I believe that these people are hurt. They're bruised. They're broken. We're broken. All of us are broken. And we're trying to navigate through this situation that I believe is orchestrated by the kingdom of darkness. And it is bringing uh, us into a, it's bringing us to a crescendo to where we're going to have to decide who we're going to believe. God, are we, we going to believe the word of God? Are we going to trust our emotions to carry us through? I believe that you as my, my brothers and sisters in Christ I like to say that my white brothers and sisters in Christ, my lighter hue. I don't even like doing that, but for the purpose of understanding, I'm saying you must be like that Samaritan and just uh, just seek to understand. Do what you can. You don't, I don't. You can't do everything, but do what's in your power that you that you have in order to facilitate healing within the, our community, within the black. The culture of the Black family. Do what you can to help facilitate healing and check back on us. Check back on us. Check back on the community. Don't just pass by, do something and keep moving because this thing is not going away because it is a sin problem. And so rather I get into, you know, theology, I'm sorry, eschatology and all that's happening right now and why I'm not, I'm going to step off, but Doug, thank you for the opportunity so much more. I would love to share, but I know that we've got limited time. I'm just saying, let's stay with the kingdom of God. Let's process with a clear heart and let's be honest about where we are, but let's come back to the foundation of why we are here as the body of Christ and what God's called us to do together. And that's the end that I'm, I'm purposing to run to. Thank you, Doug.
0: Pastor, I just wanted to affirm what you're saying, because there's quite a few things stirring in my head as you've been sharing as well, Vaughn, and of course, Apostle Barber. There are some things that need to be addressed. One is intentionality and not let anger separate us. So, and that's what I was alluding to in the, these Polynesian countries. Some countries, they don't ever look at you in the eye when they address you. It's not that they've got something to hide. It's because that's just their culture we've got to learn to be intentional. And Ricky Bradshaw, who is now KBJ, was at Union Baptist Association, and I've traveled together and transformation things around the world. The thing we realize is we have to be intentional. And in the early days, when the pastor's prayer Summit used to happen, and everybody gets on buses and goes off to a retreat for three days. Well, for the first three years, every year, there was two components I observed. One, was that the pastors who we all love and appreciate, and pastors you would know? You know, if I mentioned their names, uh, churches of significance, they meant well. But every year it started off with washing the feet of a few people. They would pick a couple of us that were Asian, pick a few other pastors, and and they felt like they had to wash our feet every time. It's not about a one day washing of feet. It's about intentional relationship. And the kingdom of God is built on relationships, isn't it? First with God, then with one another. One of the things that would happen is there would be times where a particular pastor who was a pastor of color would just vent his frustration. It comes across as anger, but it wasn't that he was a, a pointing it at any individual. It was just his opportunity to share what he was been bottled up with. Many people put a wall up because they didn't know how to receive that. As we began to discuss it after two days or three days, Then they began to let the walls down because it wasn't about how it was communicated. It was about how do we get past that, as you said, Austin Barber, that we need to move past that into a place of actually moving beyond the moment into dialogue and change. And that's what it's going to take. So these conversations are not going to be able to bring change in just uh, one Zoom call, but I, I felt like it was important for us to hear so we can share, it, at least in the realms of influence that we have. And as I'm going to have Pastor Charles Flowers, who's a dear friend who has been doing some of what you've been saying, uh, Pastor Barber. Uh,
5: thank you, Doug. Let me just uh, take us sort of around the elbow to get to the thumb, as they used to say in my naked woods when I was younger. I want to talk to you about the basis of actions and then the actions themselves that we're taking here in the city of San Antonio. I was on a podcast last night with some dear friends of mine, one, the former uh, district attorney for the city of San Antonio, and the other, a uh, chemist with one of the most prolific immunization and vaccination centers in the world, Merkel or something like that. Uh, And they're both solid believers and love God. And we were talking last night about this particular incident, about George Floyd's death and what what that meant. So th- let me just throw out a couple of things that I think if we're going to try to work toward an understanding, um, because Proverbs 4 demands that we do that. Uh, wisdom is a principal thing. It says, therefore get wisdom, but with all that getting, get an understanding. An understanding was trying to be reached last night. So you get an understanding really from two major approaches in terms of our, our, the human function of our brain. You can perceive a thing from an affective domain which deals with the feelings associated with a thing, and you can deal with it from a cognitive domain, which deals with the data. The cognitive side deals with the data. The affective side deals with the emotion. When the two things run afoul, many times one will cancel out the other. If the affective is so strong that even data is not listened to, or the data when given, when the atmosphere is overcharged effectively, the data seems like an insensitive, out-of-step move to try to avoid something in the eyes of other people. But if we as the body of Christ, if we're going to approach this thing, we have to be able to have some very tough conversations. And Doug, uh, you know, I just think the world of, of, of you and God, I think, uh, so guys, just so you know, I'm putting him on blast. I ask him to come <laughs> here tomorrow night uh, in the city of San Antonio just to help because I know he's a he's a father to this nation in many ways and has a seasoned voice to be able to address some of these things. But what I wanted to say in addition to those two perceptions of how information flows, either the effective domain or the cognitive one, if you look at cognitively at the data, I'm going to say some things that probably will, will make you think just a little bit. I'm not asking you to disagree because we're really trying to work toward an understanding. If you look at the thing cognitively, we don't have any evidence except the optics and the ethos in the culture. We don't have any evidence except the optics, the white man with his knee on the neck of a black man, and we have the ethos that abides in the African-American culture to say that this was a racist incident. Apart from that, we have no data. That guy could have been as mean to put his foot on the neck of an Asian or uh, an American Indian or another white man, but because of the ethos that is underlying in the culture, We take the optics and run right to the racism issue. And you have a lot of people who will jump on that because it's to their advantage. They again have an opportunity to pimp the pain of a people based on the optics and based on the quick exit ramp to racism. Even if you bring up a cognitive argument like the one I'm just knocking on the door of right now, it sets people aback. But if you don't field that argument, if you don't speak to that issue, there is a likelihood that you can miss some very important data that would help solve the issue. So we're talking about racism, again, because of the ethos that lies underneath in the African-American culture. So the the bigger question becomes, why is that ethos there? You don't have to be a a scientist to surmise why that ethos is underlying in the African-American culture. We are the only people group in America that has been successfully enslaved in this nation. It was tried with the American Indian, but the disease or viruses that were in the European Caucasian culture, in addition to that, if they ran, they would know exactly where to run to. This was their land. They knew exactly how to get out of it. They knew exactly where to hide. So they didn't make a good candidate as a race for slavery. But the Africans came here. We just passed this event. Uh, marker last year, uh, if you agree with the original sixteen nineteen entry entry end of the slavery into the Americas, we passed the year mark last year. We came here in chains. the only thing i'm I'm doing about this is to help us be sensitive to the ethos that lies underneath in the culture because if we can't see that again, we miss a whole section of stuff that that makes us incapable of addressing the thing I think the way that it needs to be addressed so just running through quickly the litany of some of the things that dismantled a people and and built an ethos. Here's what I submit to you: that the African culture in many ways is dealing with what is now uh, popularly termed as PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. That it, it it runs rampant in the community because of a number of these things. Not, we haven't been so diagnosed, but you see you see the effects of it. So slavery dismantled families because we were being studied on a slave plantation like a bull or a horse and and made to, to interact sexually with our daughters and with our wives, sisters, and whatever would be the genetic benefit for the slave owner. All of this is saying that you are not human You're not treated with the dignity of a human. Your family means nothing. You're only good as far as your pedigree and the stoutness of your back and your strength can lend to the needs of the slave owner. And, And then again, not taught to read, forbidden to read. I'm only going through this because I'm trying to help us understand the underlying ethos in the culture. If we if we walk away from that or treat it like it's not there, which is a lot of times what we want to do in a shallow move of reconciliation, we want to act like it's not there. But that went on for over from 1619 to 1865, the end of the Civil War. And then we have a period of reconstruction from 1865 to 1877. Pick up in 1877 again, and you have another round of, of slavery called Jim Crow. And in that, uh, lynchings, uh, Tuskegee Institute says 3,500 of them. Uh, over 3,500 were lynched. I'll come back to a another portion of the lynched population in a minute. But what is a lynching? A lynching is be, being beaten to your nearly dead, just like Vaughn described what happened to him, beaten until he was nearly dead. And in a lynching, the only thing that brings you back to consciousness a lot of times is the urine of your assailants. They're doing that to to keep you a, a conscious enough to perceive the next grotesque act they want to do to you, which in many cases is cutting the man, uh, an African-American male's genitalia off, stripping him naked, tarring him, hanging him up to die, and then and setting him on fire 3,500 times. 3,500 times from 1877 all the way up into the 1960s, 50s and 60s. So what does that say to a group of people that have been so treated? What ethos does that build under the surface for a people that have been treated after 200 years of slavery and then another 100 years of this? It reinforces this notion that in this country and among this people, you have no value. You are here, but you're not here. So that ethos, if you translate that into how certain authorities police authorities and I'm not against the police I I know that the absence of anyone who defends law the absence of anyone who upholds law and defends it means that we as a people and a nation descend into chaos the police are like numbers chapter 16 they're standing between the living and the dead they're the ones who are preserving our way of life so I'm not saying what I'm saying in any way to denigrate their office but as is in any case not every preacher is holy, not every doctor is is legit. There are some police officers too who have gotten into the ranks for the sole purpose of being able to able to overstep the bounds of authority with impunity because of the badge they wear. Now both of those things exist. So if we go from the whole the trauma of slavery and we get through uh, the period after Reconstruction and then under. The Johnson administration, we come into a different type of oppression, but it looks so very different because under the Johnson administration, there were things that emerged that said to the population, the black population, we understand, we know how you're hurting. We know how difficult it has been for you. So let's give you a bunch of government programs and let these government programs salve your wounds. And yet written into those government programs is a smiling face behind which is principles that denigrated and destroyed the Black family. It says to the Black woman, we want to help you and give you all the money that you need because we know you're a struggling mother, but you can't have a man in your house. And for every child that you have, we will give you additional money for it because we love your child. We love you and we love your child. It's oppression with a more hideous face than the first two rounds of oppression through slavery and Jim Crow. But it has, it has built an ethos in Black people. We were so hungry as Black people in the days of the Johnson administration that when relief came with that nice-looking face on oppression came, I should say, with that nice-looking face on it, we grabbed at it. Finally, somebody has demonstrated some care. I'm telling you, it was diabolical to seduce a people who stood in so much need to seduce them with the, the false premises of helping them only to make them dependent and enslave them yet again. So three crucibles that the African-American has come through, that underlying ethos will make them look at it, at the optics of a white man with his knee on the neck of a black man and bring all of that unresolved pain and all of that unresolved displacement and all of that un- unresolved being uh, maligned and, and marginalized, bring all, all of that back on the heel of an optic that may not be racism at all, but it feeds into the optic. So we jump right on it. So there has to be a way that the body of Christ, listen, you and I both know, if there ever is going to be answer to any of the world, world's ills in any solid way, it'll be because the wisdom of heaven flows through the body of Christ to bring it to the eyes of the public. And the church must take the lead in it whereas the church in many cases have been hesitant to do so because we're grappling with the thing ourselves. So it requires God to bring us some clarity. It requires God to bring us both to the height of an effective response to what happened with George Floyd and to a cognitive response to what happens, happened with him and be able to, in the light of those two things, to deal with the ethos that's built in the African-American culture. So those, that's kind of the background. Here in the city of San Antonio, we recognize what's happening in Minneapolis. There's a lot of layers to that. So, so I won't talk to the layers of it, but I will say that a people who feels like over the generations, and we're now in 2020, and they're still dealing with this uh, marginalization and hostility and disadvantage, that almost it gets it, it comes to a boiling point where you say no more. And you begin to express that in ways that is destructive and negative when you are not trained to do it otherwise. If you don't know, and when I say trained, I'm not talking about academic training. I'm talking about our resolve for the issues in our culture starts at the base of the cross. This is not a religious escapism. This is really talking about the kingdom principles of God that will prove themselves to be Dominant over everything else in the culture, if we engage it long enough. Martin Luther King uh, 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 typifies that in terms of how he faced racism and how he faced all the disadvantages that were on the people in the days of the civil rights movement by a nonviolent biblical approach. He was not this social activist, Dr. King, he was the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King embracing truth as it stands in the scripture and begin to, to be like a contemporary prophet of our day to turn that prophetic voice and apostolic anointing that is able to turn things. And we're sitting here today having this conversation because a life like that was spent. So I think it it, it is certainly on the church's shoulders. It is our responsibility to be able to look through the the lens of the effective domain to look at it cognitively to understand the ethos that exists in a people group and then come away with action so what we did here in the city of san antonio just we started calling we knew that we have to get out ahead of what could spill over out of the twin cities into many other cities and some i, I understand to some degree it has already begun to to spark fires in other places we have to get out ahead of it so i called our leaders in the city together uh, with our law enforcement people for two things. One, to understand where a people group are. Secondly, to reaffirm the necessity for the establishment and the honor of those who uphold the law. And thirdly, for the law itself to turn introspectively, to look for and root out people like this officer who killed someone he has sworn to protect and serve. And that introspection and that purging has to happen in a way that the public can monitor it and know that it's going on so that our confidence can be in law enforcement again so that it is not an us versus them. It's a Romans 13. He that bears the sword does not bear it in vain. He's there for the punishment of evildoers and he's there for the celebration of them that do well. So if we can come back to that place of understanding and bring some solidarity back to our culture, it's the church that's going to lead that because nobody else understands authority like the church. Nobody else understands the brokenness of authority like the church either. So we have to take the lead in it that the redemptive thing that healed was your personal relationship with God and the purging of that, the potential hatred that could come out of that. It's what our world needs right now.
0: Pastor, thank you so much. And wow, that really helped me understand the layers that brings it in, as you said, the cognitive optics even now that we understand where. So now we can't just say, well, let's get over it. We can't just get over it when you have layers that have built it to this point. But the only healing element and the change will happen when heaven invades the church and the church invades the community.
5: Can I speak to just one other issue? You guys remember uh, in Ohio, I think it was, that they discovered that some some girls were held. They were white girls. They were held in the basement of a man's home, and they were sexually assaulted down there for a number of years. And I think some even had babies and lost their babies in that man's basement. And when they finally emerged, the sympathy of the nation went to these handful of white girls that came out of that situation. And they said, and rightfully so, they said these girls are going to need ministry counsel. We want to walk with them. We want to make sure that they get back up on their feet. We want to make sure that there's restoration and healing that takes place with them. And that's right for them to do that. But when you put that in the contrast of a whole nation of people that for hundreds of years has went through the same thing and you just turn and tell that people, y'all get over it. It's, 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 slavery's done. But is there not a necessary response of restoration?
0: Yes
5: that must take place in God.
0: You're right, and restoration has to be part of the process of our calling and ministry of reconciliation. There has to be, for lasting reformation, it'll only come if we deal with the root issues. We call it informed intercession. How do we know how to intercede or to make change if we don't understand why things are the way they are. So thank you, Pastor Flowers. And I have Bishop Harry Jackson on, a longtime friend, and helped me actually here as we did a whole month of reconciliation a few years ago, and we culminated in honoring Bishop Roy Cossey in Latter-day Deliverance Revival Church in the Fifth Ward. And and so, uh, Bishop Harry Jackson, if you're on, if if you would just share with us these last few moments and minutes. And uh, you have the ministry of Reconciled Church. I think it's so prophetic and needed today more than ever, Bishop.
6: Well, thank you. And uh, Doug, it's great to be with you. And uh, Vaughn's testimony If I can call you by half of your first name, it was amazing. And I think that we have an opportunity to really minister life. But the question is, how do we do that? And I'm thankful for Charles Flowers, who we minister for uh, frequently. And I'm going to build on the foundation that he attempted to lay for us. I pray that you guys get the concept about the kind of two sides of the brain. I'm going to simplify what he said and just talk about facts and brain facts, left side, right side responses. So let's just talk. I've got a book I want you to look at. Uh, It's called The Bible. And in Exodus chapter 6, verse number 8 and 9, God speaks to Moses. And he says, and I will bring you into the land concerning the which I did swear to give it to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob, and I will give it you for an inheritance. I am the Lord. So God's simply saying, I am Jehovah. There's nothing I can't do. I'm going to bring you into the land and then verse 9 says something that will rock your world, and it builds on the complex and deep thoughts. And our brother Flowers is a deep thinker, and, but I'm glad he took us through those steps. But you're going to hear a very simplistic response in the next verse. It says, And Moses spoke to the children of Israel, but they hearkened not to Moses for anguish of spirit and for cruel Bondage. In other words, Moses heard from God. You'll see the letters are in red. He said what he had to say to the children of Israel. In our charismatic world, we would call this a prophecy. If I was just a regular evangelical Baptist type person, which some of us online I'm sure are, I'd call this anointed preaching however you call it, look at me if you would for a moment, their hearts were shielded. They couldn't receive the promise, God's promise, directly from Jehovah because of three things, anguish of spirit, cruel bondage, and I believe a hidden issue. I won't call it Unforgiveness, I'll take it to another level. It's bitterness. The injustice. Now, let's unpack who these people were. They had spent 400 years in slavery. American Blacks, 400 years, as Charles Flowers told us, right? 430 years, that meant the first 30 years in which Joseph was a first an outcast, then got lifted to be that key internal leader of Egypt. You look at that, what you'll see is that around Genesis 15, there's a prophetic statement from God himself once again saying that the children of Israel would spend 400 years in slavery and then God would free them. So maybe 400 years is the time frame God uses to change and judge a nation. So my question to you is, what happens if we don't pass the test? Is not deep, This a real simple. The cultural mindset, the anguish, the hurt is real. So how do you heal the heart of a community? Moses came with a word that is absolute truth and absolute fact from the absolute God and said, hey, here's what's going on. And the people he wanted to encourage They weren't in a heart condition to receive what Moses would say. So I believe God was still moving, if you read this whole passage, to release the children of Israel from bondage. Going to verse 10 says, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, go in, verse 11, speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And then he began, God, he began the process of the 10 plagues that ultimately, bam, would cause the release of Israel. The Passover happens after the 10 plagues. God begins the issue of releasing the children of Israel from their 400-year bondage. That release is the death angel passes over. Three things happen as a result of the Passover. And that was, first, they were laden with silver and gold. That was God's retribution for all the problems, the pain, it was his repayment. Second, we find there's no feeble one among them, not from the COVID virus. Anybody getting the prophetic picture? I'm trying to give you a wave at me if you get into what I'm talking about. So not from the COVID, just protecting them. We have three times the number of our um, minority population now struggling with COVID, we're dying in greater numbers, all of that. But the issue then becomes, can we pray in such a way that the death angel passes over, we come out with silver and gold, we come out no feeble one among them, all this historic illnesses that are probably somewhat due also to the condition of slavery and the reality of the trauma that's done emotionally, physically, psychologically. On this one, I agree, George Floyd, you got to know who it went and where, why these guys did what. But I think we can say that minorities, whether you be Black, whether you be Hispanic, whether you be Asian Pacific, I bet you could still say that the reason that we got more illnesses of heart disease, cancer, all these issues, is because of the psychological, emotional trauma we walked through. I think I can say that objectively. So where does that bring me? Well, God was moving to release them. Maybe that's what God wants to do right now, 40 years later in America. Maybe he's setting it up, we can't ignore this problem any longer. So the question for you, real simple, what's the word? What's the message that will unlock the heart and start a process of healing? Now that's emotional, that's personal. On the other side, there's structural racism in America. And if you can't see that, you're so blind, I can never heal you, uh, you got problems. You got irreconcilable differences with reality. There is a problem, boom. So what are we gonna do about it? Can we bring encouragement? That's what prophecy is supposed to do, bring edification, exhortation, and comfort. And then what specifically are you going to do about it? So recently, in the last few days, I've been in uh, direct communication with the White House of some of the things. I got a letter back essentially saying that they've responded A, B, C to some of the things I've said, but the reality is we need a prophetic word. I'm not so sure that the White House can even speak that word. So who's got the word? What are we gonna say? How are we gonna heal? What in the world are we gonna do? How are we gonna pray? Just saying I'm sorry is sometimes you reach a point where saying I'm sorry is not enough. If we got some married people out there, I've come to some situations in my marriage to my late wife, 41 years, where I was trying to say, I am sorry, and she would basically be irreconcilable. I couldn't get her to pay attention. She would say to me, brother, I just don't know about you. Something ain't right with how you think, and your behavior is not showing that you're sorry about anything. And then you got to stay in the doghouse until you find out the key that will show enough penance. So I, I, maybe everybody if, if on this line can relate to that. That's where America is with Black people and Hispanic people, hush. They don't want to hear another word, another promise, another, I'm going to do this starting tomorrow. It's going to get better. And all they're saying is, before this guy, George Floyd, there was somebody else and uh, there was the man crying, I can't breathe in New York City. And then you go back, Brother Charles started talking about the process of lynching and all this. So I want to close and offer and bring me a prayer by saying this. Over 60 years ago, my father was stopped by a state trooper in Tallahassee, Florida, where he was attending Florida A&M University. He was made to kneel down. Policeman, 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 state trooper in this case, took out a gun, pointed at his head, and then shot the gun. He purposely, though, shot it just over his head. And my dad was temporarily deafened. He told this story later. This was part of our family narrative. We all knew this story that he decided that day, I'm leaving Florida. I'm not trying to show, throw shade, but of the 3,700 lynchings that happened during the period that the Senate counted, many of them were in Georgia, Florida, and Mississippi. Those were the ringleaders of all that lynching that happened to black folk. The week before, uh, there was a grotesque lynching and mutilation And so unspeakable things I dare not repeat that happened to another Black man. My father was threatened. He said, as soon as I get my degree That he got on GI Bill, I'm leaving the South. Went to Cincinnati, Ohio. And then my family got engaged in politics from a grassroots strategy, meaning signs in the yard, signs in the car, bumper stickers, engagement to my mother. A late mother passed away, always volunteering at the voting poll, boot polling booths, that kind of thing. And we believed in the American system. So I believe there needs to be a prophetic word. There needs to be strategic action. Who's going to be on the committee that oversees how we deal with police violence? Who's going to initiate the strategy that says you're going to be penalized in San Antonio if we hear that you've got a culture of violence down there. We're going to withdraw federal money from you. Or if it happens in Beltsville, Maryland, where I live, we're going to take federal money from you. If it happens in Houston, something's going to happen to the people that perpetrate a culture of violence and there needs to be on the church's side. I'm praying today, I'm a little emotional, but I'm praying if I'm the one Lord that has that prophetic word, that message, let me speak it in the right place at the right time in the right tone. Maybe one of you will have the message that we need to hear in all of Texas. But I think we can't play the game left versus right any longer, it's got to be biblical. The Democrats are so confused, they don't know their way out of the woods. The Republicans are so dumb, at times they can't hear the command, jump up or jump down. So we got a blind party and a deaf party, and what we don't need is us letting our salvation be politically driven. We need a word from heaven, and we need some structural direction. We know we can't fix this in five minutes because it's been 400 years. We know we can't fix this in just five years because it's been 400 years. But will somebody talk enough sense that we'll act like there's hope? So Martin Luther King Jr. said it this way writing was the language of the unheard. Writing is the language of the unheard. Writing is also the language of Exodus chapter 6, verse 9. The people who are in anguish of spirit and who've endured cruel bondage, not only will they not hear the prophetic word from Moses, and I've got my, my hands crossed. Not only won't they hear, but they will react. And their language they're speaking in is called rioting. So I'm praying. I think like Brother Charles, I may understand a little bit of the situation that's going on, the background dynamics. I summarize it. I need a word from heaven that's going to speak to the church. And then I need a structural issue word and strategy that will deal with the issue of their systemic racism that has to be torn down. And it doesn't really much matter to me exactly what this guy does with other groups and everything. Somebody got to deal with this black situation. Somebody's got to deal with a similar Hispanic situation. Somebody's got to deal with Asian Pacific people were incarcerated during World War II, all Japanese, Somebody's got to deal with the fact that the Chinese booked the railroads in the West. Somebody's got to deal with the fact that we're normalizing behavior or asking people to just ignore a systematic dehumanization that's happened for 400 years from the blackest of the black to the lightest of the brown. And that's our history now. I've worked through this to a point that I'm not mad at the people in the generation who weren't a part of what happened. If you and your family weren't one of the lynchers, the problematic people, it just means you are in position for the benefit of the nation to make a change. We've got a book coming out in August called A Manifesto. And it's American Christian contract with minority. It's going to be called A Manifesto. I think it will just talk about where we go from here. I hope this book is part of being that prophetic word of healing.
0: It's going to take the intervention of heaven, but then also the strategy of heaven and God to lead the church to know how to bring true reconciliation and reform. In closing, I'd like to have a longtime friend, former NFL football player, Baylor football player, Bishop Alan Rice. Just take a a last couple of moments to just share your heart, and then would you close us in prayer? Yes, thank
3: you, Doug. This has been so
0: awesome. With all my brothers in Christ, this is just—I've been so
3: blessed. But let me just close with this. Jesus said something that we know. He said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He said, he sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And Jesus said to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And I like this, then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. I think this is something we ought to close the book on because right now I need the spirit of the Lord. And I'm ministering right now a series on the three temptations of Jesus. And I was on the last one and something hit me in this past Sunday. I said, you know, the state of our spiritual stamina at the time of testing will largely determine how we do with the test. And so I may have done good in April, but May is here. And what I need personally is the spirit of the Lord, because I am a broken believer right now. And last night, I had a chance to believe, to uh, witness something that I believe why we need to spirit of the Lord. One of my greatest church members, a lady who I call Smiley, because every time I see her, she only smiles. I've never seen her without a smile on her face. She's a picture of joy. But last night, suddenly, she just went home to be with the Lord. And so going to her house, and in the midst of COVID, you know, I got my mask on and all of that. But her husband, when he saw me He grabbed me, and for 15 minutes, he wept uncontrollably. He said, my baby's gone. She wasn't supposed to be like this. And I think what happened when we saw this man's knee on this man's neck, I don't care if he was black, white, or whoever, I'm broken. Let me deal with just one thing. I've got three daughters. My oldest daughter is militant. okay? My middle daughter is Mother Teresa times 20. And my middle daughter wrote a post this morning. She says, I was about to post something, but since I realized I'm an ambassador for Christ, I stopped it because I didn't want to come across my feelings. I said, Alicia, you are a a blessing to the kingdom of God, the body of Christ, and the world. But I know we all know we need the anointing of God. And if we're going to go forth as the body of Christ, we know this, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. And he went about doing good. In 1971 in Houston, we were integrated. My, neighbor, my neighborhood was all black, but my school district was white. So I got bust in fourth grade. I grew up with all the same people. They let us play football. I was one of four blacks who got to play football in my neighborhood. So I was the only black on my football team in fourth grade, fifth grade, and sixth grade. My high school coach was a white Christian. My college coach, Grant Taft, was a white Christian. And Les Steckles for the Minnesota Vikings drafted me was a white Christian. These men poured into my life. But right now, what I'm seeing is this millennial generation, my daughters, they are whipped. They're bent out of shape. They don't know things. So we've got to bring healing to them. And I think the living Jesus would do that. And for me, I need you guys because we know we got to carry this gospel. But we've got to do what the man of God said, man, we need to be healed. And so I'm hurting because of this, but I know the Lord's going to heal us. He's going to lead us. And those who really believe in Jesus and have a relationship with him, we know that he who began a good work in us, he's going to bring it to completion. And you all know, one of the biggest travesties we see many in the body of Christ upon racial lines, it is so bad in how we are seeing things. I'm having personal conversations with people in my church who are Anglo, friends in Minnesota who are Anglo, because I can make a difference where I am. So we got to have the the universal solution. Right now, we can do it in our own backyards. I want to encourage us all to do what we can in our own backyard, in our own church, our own community, and then come together when we have opportunity globally. But it's going to be one thing, how God anointed Doug Stringer and Bishop Harry Carson and everybody else, and we go about doing good. Thank so, you. Father, thank you today thank for you. being the God that you are. We thank you for your son Jesus, Yeshua, our hope. Mm. Your word says in Colossians 1:27, the Christ in us is our hope of glory. Mm. So we call upon you, King Jesus, to rule and to reign as you do. Let your kingdom come on the inside of me. We know, Father, that your purpose is to exalt your Son in your people and to redeem lost men through spiritual awakening. Awaken us, O God. Let there be a sovereign move of your Holy Spirit and deny and destroy and annihilate the works of the devil. Cause us to be one, O God, in the body of Christ so that the world will believe that you sent Jesus and souls will be saved and we will reap the benefits and we give give you praise for it and glory. And God, thank you for uh, Apostle Doug and all these men of God. Help us to work together. We want to see your kingdom come in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Amen. Thank you, everyone. We know it will take a united church voice and church leadership like yourselves to encourage other church leaders if we're going to see the healing of the land and the soul of the nation and the healing from all of our racial divisions and divides that we've Allow the enemy to continue division in us. We've got to address these issues, be candid and honest and to learn from one another. Thank you for each and every of you. This could be our Nehemiah moment. This could be our Jonah moment. you know, could we be living in a moment where we, the voice of the church, need to speak into, like Jonah, into the situation of a nation like Nineveh. This is a moment for us, our Nehemiah moment to build, and to heal and to put our weapons of warfare on the which are not carnal but mighty for the pulling down of strongholds so thank you God bless you all and we cherish your leadership thank God for each of you I just believe that in the most difficult of times the true church emerges that we will see uh, the goodness of God in the midst of all of this so thank you for each of you thank you for your influence in our lives and thank you for your honesty today we hope you enjoyed this episode of A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends and ask you to prayerfully consider supporting the ministry at somebodycares.org or by texting your donation amount to 805-422-7348. Please join us again for A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends.